On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, should the government be paying stand-up comedians? There's a move by some comedians to make that happen, but since government and politicians are the target of a lot of the comedians, do we really want them curtailed by this? Because you would think that'll happen. We'll talk to Ben Guyot well-known local comedian about that. We've always thought music makes you smarter. Studies have said that, but a new study is really bolstering that. Over 100,000 kids were studied and they found that kids who took music lessons in school, much, much higher grades. And OJ Simpson has decided to join Twitter. Well, we'll talk about that because it's a bit of a mess. All coming up here on the podcast. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I want to talk to you about something, Scott Radley Show, by the way, I want to talk to you about something that sounds a bit like a joke, which would be appropriate since we are going to be talking about comedians. Hopefully they are talking about jokes. That's what we like comedians to do. Uh, But I don't know that everybody is going to find this topic particularly funny. Here it is. The Canadian Association of Stand-Up Comedians. The Canadian Association of Stand-Up Comedians, didn't know such a thing existed, has hired a lobbyist to apparently try to convince the federal government to make stand-up comedy eligible for government grants. In other words, comedians, some of them anyway, those who are involved in this, presumably want tax dollars to go towards their comedy. They want to be, if not on the government payroll, then certainly loosely affiliated with the government payroll. They want to be a form of civil servants is what I guess we can interpret from this. Uh, is, is this is this really where we want to go? Let me bring in Ben Guyatt. He is a local comedian. You've probably heard him perform somewhere. He's long been the host of Comedy at Club 54. Uh, he joins me now. Ben, how are you tonight? Very good, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well. I did not know there was such a thing as the Canadian Association of Stand-Up Comedians. I had no idea you guys were all part of a big union. Uh, actually, I didn't know about it either. But, really? You know, yeah, 30 years ago, a handful of guys tried to start a comedian's union in Toronto, and that didn't work out too well. But I, I was listening to your intro. This, I mean, I think it's a ridiculous idea what's been put forward here because it is on the taxpayer's dime. And... But uh, Comedy Club 54, the TV show, was the only stand-up show in the country that did not use taxpayer money to produce the show. So this isn't too far out you know, from left field, because a lot of the stand-up shows on the CBC or CTV were government-subsidized. So are they I'm not still? Where she's going. Are they? Are they not still, Ben? Like when you when you get to the very end of all the shows, like just for laughs or whatever, they always have that either the the flag of Quebec or the flag of Canada saying it's been sponsored. I, I'm assuming many of them are still sponsored. Oh, they absolutely still are. But uh, to to have comedians uh, applying for government grants, here's what I don't like about that: stand-up comedy is really the last bastion of free speech. And if you ask me, the last thing we need is government subsidies, because that, to me, that's going to equate to censorship. And I think that's going to handcuff comedians even more so than they are now, thanks to the PC world we live in. Okay, there are, uh, there are a number of topics that every stand-up comedian, or at least most stand-up comedians, really enjoy digging into. Uh, sexual foibles would be one, for sure. Uh, just human things that go funny. And government. Government is always, or, or bureaucracy or things along those lines, that, that's always a favorite topic, right? Par- politicians directly? Absolutely. And I, I, I read about this, what you're speaking of, this, uh, you know, that comedians should have government grants. 
the, the worst thing a, a stand-up comedian can, can face is an audience that has a political agenda. What will make it even more difficult, as far as I'm concerned, is if this happens with the comedians, too. That means if, if you're being government-subsidized, you're pretty well going to be towing the government's line, aren't you? Because you're going to have to, your jokes are, are going to have to be unoffensive to the current federal or provincial or municipal government. At least that's the way I see it. And and are you saying inoffensive politically or inoffensive in general that would meet with all the current modern standards of what somebody might consider offensive? Well, I would say on the, on the hit parade, the number one thing would be politically, but all of it. I mean, uh, you know, when you go on stage these days, it's getting more difficult because uh, the audience does have an agenda, and they're nervous. They're more nervous than they've ever been. It used to be that they're nervous that they want you to do well, and and that's a warm and fuzzy feeling. It's quite the different feeling when they're sitting there with their arms crossed uh, expecting you to deliver on the politically correct spectrum. That makes it very difficult, and I also know that uh, the comedian who's proposing this, she claims that the comedians support Justin Trudeau. Well, I have news for you. I would say at least 90% of the comedians in the country and the ones that I work with, uh, they actually think Justin Trudeau is a bit of a clown. So uh, this almost seems like uh, trying to make a buck off the taxpayer's back. Well, isn't it? Isn't that... Isn't that the same, essentially, Ben? I mean, look, when, when Stephen Harper was in, politicians loved to knock Stephen Harper. When Justin Trudeau was in, they loved to knock Justin Trudeau. This is, this is air that comedians breathe to take a peg out of politicians. This is what you do. In the States, Saturday Night Live has made a 45- or 50-year career out of doing this. This is who you poke fun at. You take shots at the powerful. Yes, and when, when Stephen Harper was in power, I'd make jokes about how he was so stiff. You know, so it doesn't matter who occupies 24 Sussex Drive or the White House. Uh, every leader is fodder for a comedian. But I have a funny feeling, and I probably shouldn't even say this, but stand-up comedy is kind of a dying art form, thanks to the extremists of the politically correct world. And this, this comedian who's proposing this, it's almost like she's trying to write the eulogy for stand-up comedy, because these progressives, they're, they're, they're killing the art of stand-up comedy, because you can't, you have to be so careful what you say. It used to be, Scott, that you could please 90% of the audience. Now it's like 50%. 50% are happy with it, 50% are unhappy with it, and usually the people that are unhappy with it are 30 and under. I'm not trying to, you know label millennials or snowflakes but that just seems that's the hard reality on the ground at a comedy club you're listening to the scott radley show podcast on 900 chml chatting with ben guy the guy who's long been behind comedy at club 54 you've probably seen him perform somewhere it's been around for a while you're not an old man ben but boy you perform for a long time so uh people have probably come across your path some at some point maybe even been the target of your barbs although i can't imagine you've ever been mean to anyone at one of your shows <laughs> well, you know what? I don't uh, deliberately set out to be mean, but um, yeah, I've been at this. I'm 57. I've been doing it professionally since I was what 18 years old. So, uh, yeah, you're right. I'm old. Old for old for stand-up <laughs> comedy. That's for sure. Well, we are talking about stand-up comedy because there is a 
I don't know if it's fair to call it a union. It's a collective of stand-up comedians, the Canadian Association of Stand-Up Comedians that neither Ben nor I are familiar with, that is lobbying or hiring lobbyists to push the federal government to give grants to stand-up comics so that the federal government essentially would be paying stand-up comedians for their work. And Ben, you touched on this before the break, and I want to get back into this for a second, because I would have to believe that if such a thing, let, let's assume for a second they pass this, and this is going to be a thing. The federal government is not simply going to say, Ben Guyot, here is $30,000 or whatever amount. They are going to want to come out and see you perform and hear your act, I would assume, before they determine whether or not you are worthy of this, correct? You would think? I, you, you know what? I don't know. I I guess so. I guess that would probably be the, the proper thing to do. But I have a, a here's one of the major problems with this that I don't think anybody's thought through, and that is, you know, it, there is not a lot of money in stand-up comedy. There really isn't, and there's fewer and fewer stages in the country, and there's one club closing in the United States per week. So there is definitely a problem with the stand-up comedy scene. If the government hands over money to stand-up comedians. The comedian will not be the one who benefits the most because a lot of that money, I think, is going to be calculated into and skimmed by club owners. And I think that's a big mistake. I think you'll see a lot of that. Okay. But even before then, if you now have a situation where you have, and again, I would assume that somebody will vet the comedian to make sure that it doesn't embarrass the government by giving money to someone and it's going to blow up in their face. It goes to what you said earlier, I would think, and that is you had better be A, trumpeting the party line, probably, or certainly B, you can't say anything that probably anybody could deem offensive or you're probably not going to be on the payroll. And if a comedian can't be, and when I use the word offensive, I mean, there is Kramer using the N-word offensive. I'm not talking about that, but there are things that are still considered edgy that the government may say, oh, I, yeah, I don't, I don't, it, this to me seems like it's the fastest way to completely neuter and, and just cut the legs out from under comedy. Well, I agree with that. And like I said before, stand-up comedy is one of the few, if not the last bastion of free speech. And this is an infringement on free speech because if the government, you, hey, listen, Scott, you know the government, whatever they get involved in, they always manage to screw it up. And the last thing I would want to see is the government subsidizing comedians because it will dictate what their material is. And we, we all know we already live in a very uh, a tight, very politically correct world. Now, I understand that the government, and I, I don't know if I agree with it, but they subsidize things like Bombardier. I get that. We're talking tens of thousands of jobs. But when you're talking about stand-up comedy, you're talking about, and I'm being uh, totally honest with you here, Guys that make a, guys and gals that make a living at doing stand-up comedy probably numbers under 20 people in the entire nation, and I'm fortunate to be one of them. So, is this is 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 what Sandra doing the comedian who's who's proposing this? Is it because she knows there's not a lot of money in stand-up comedy and that there's fewer stages? And is this a handout to comics? I think that's what this is because I. You know, a lot of comedians, they're part-time. Well, 99% of them are part-time, so they would probably love this. Mm. But I don't think the taxpayer should have to foot the bill for something that somebody wants to do and entertain people. That's, that's on you. You know, what, are we going to start subsidizing, 
you know, lemonade stands down the street. Well, let me l- let me jump in for a sec, Ben. I only have 30 seconds, and I'll let you finish with this. But we do subsidize art galleries, and we do subsidize music festivals, and we do subsidize other arts. So flipping the table a bit, what's the difference? Well, there is a bit of a difference, and that is this, is that uh, art can be interpreted, right? But when you have cold, hard words coming out of a microphone and the speaker's, and the government doesn't like that. Your message a lot is is, a, is is quicker. It's more precise and concise and biting than, let's say, a piece of art. But it's you know you're you're partly tr- right in this in that as I mentioned off the top, we already subsidize stand-up comedy television programs. Do we need to do it in live clubs? I don't think so. I don't think it's right. I don't think the taxpayer should have to pay for it. We pay for enough. Ben Guy, uh, you can see him somewhere around town. You've got a website, don't you? I do, BenGuy.com, and I perform uh, every Friday and Saturday night at Comedy Club 54 in Burlington. There you go. Go look him up. Uh, ben, always appreciate your time. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much for having me on, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, you've heard of the Mozart effect, right? Playing a little Mozart for you right here. It's... Very, very loosely based on the belief that some, that some studies have found that listening to Mozart, or any classical music really, makes you smarter. Uh, this goes back to a 1991 French study that says this kind of music enhances spatial reasoning. Basically, it fires up certain parts of your brain and makes learning and retaining knowledge easier. And it's a popular theory, even if it's a little bit controversial, because a closer look at the study finds that whatever positive effects that it may have, and no one I don't think is disputing there are some positive effects, probably only lasts about 15 minutes. So listening to Mozart does not permanently make you smart. It's like a little jolt of Mozart caffeine or something that'll boost your brain. Anyway, this brings us to a new study. Researchers at the University University of British Columbia looked not just at listening to classical music, but taking lessons, music lessons of any kind. Uh, in other words, involving yourself in classical music or music as a participant rather than simply as a viewer or a listener. And the result, well, students who studied music in high school had higher grades in English, science, and math than those who didn't. And students who played an instrument had higher marks even than that. Scott Emerson was one of the researchers from UBC who was involved in this. He joins us now. Scott, thanks for doing this today. Yeah, no problem. Nice to be here. Uh, this, as I say, with the Mozart effect and other things, people have believed something along this line for some time. So when you got to the end of the study here and you found out the results, was there really any surprise for you? Um, mixtures, yeah. Somewhat surprised, I think. Um, I think the consistency of what we found and really the, they were really quite substantive uh, effects. And um, I think maybe the most important thing is that the effects that we saw were were above and beyond um, a lot of sort of individual differences or, or differences between the types of students who take music versus those who don't. Um, so I definitely was surprised in some sense, but there was sort of a, a suspicion this might be going on as well. How significant then? You say the difference was bigger. Are we talking like the mar- the grade air spread was bigger or? Yeah, definitely. So. Um, in science, there are different ways of measuring sort of the impact or the sort of the meaningfulness of uh, of findings we see in associations. And what we did find is that the the differences um, were really of quite um, substantive magnitude compared to other 
you know, educational uh, interventions and then programs and processes. So things like if you, um, you know, have academic support, like after school support, things like that. So the findings we received were pretty similar or in some cases beyond that. So it translated to students, um, you know, getting, having students who took music and those who took it for quite a long time had grades that were um, quite a bit higher. So like sometimes up to five or six or seven percent higher. Hmm. Um, than those who didn't. And this is, again, this is like after we, you know, control and or like take out of the equation all these other differences between students, like those who are wealthier or less wealthy, things like that. So it was really quite uh, quite impressive. And also the fact that it was uh, across different uh, domains. So English is obviously quite different than math and science, but we saw quite a know, quite a, a similar pattern across the different, you know, types of classes. So way beyond the possibility of it just being a little bit of a fluke. Yeah, I mean, I'm always a bit, uh, I try to sort of stay balanced with these sort of findings and things, but we, we did we did our best to try to address that, because I think that's a big criticism, and the first thing a lot of you know, readers or listeners might think, that like, oh, this is just, you know, students were already doing better, and it's just, we're just showing that, like, oh, students who are, you know, maybe more affluent, like, they do better, you know, academically, whatever, but... We, we did our best to try and um, adjust for that. So what we did was we, we focused just on public uh, high school students. So we didn't uh, consider private schools, which some previous studies have sort of put them all together. But there are definitely differences there in terms of, uh, you know, the economic backgrounds of the families and things. And those can impact both whether they participate in music as well as the types of grades they receive in school. And we also um, statistically adjusted our, our analyses. So... In like normal person speak, that means uh, if we we see okay, those who take music have grades uh, that are higher. But does that remain the case if we if everyone had the same sort of you know, economic background and demographics? Do we kind of take that out of the equation, sort of level the playing field? Do we still see these impacts, or or are the patterns that we saw are they just sort of you know byproducts, or just you know like you say flukes of the of like the types of students who maybe take music. So so that was I mean, being able to see those the effects after, you know, taking out those factors, that was uh, that was nice to see as well. Now Scott, the the tricky part about this, I would assume, is it's very difficult for this to be a causal mm. study. We we don't know, we can't know if the music is making the kids smarter or if smarter kids happen to be taking music, correct? Yeah, no, no, definitely. Yeah, no, it's an excellent point and um, I mean most people know the phrase like causation, it does not equal correlation, vice versa. Um, but I would temper that by actually showing causation is like very, very difficult to do in science. Um, it requires really like a very specific set of circumstances. And um, But saying that just because something is not causal or there isn't evidence for a causation does not mean that it's, uh, you know, useless and mm. thrown out. Um, so I think what we did, what we did was try to look. We used sort of the whole population, so all all students, sorry, in uh, the province of British Columbia. And it was a um, huge number; it's over a hundred thousand. Yeah, yes, yeah, so yeah, hundred and over hundred twelve thousand students and uh, several cohorts. So it was really um, very representative. And this was like if we could uh, have an ideal sort of population, this was it. Because a lot of the studies you read, a lot of the um, stuff that's conducted is based on quite small samples, and that's the same with the music and the things like the Mozart effect. Those are often based on very small and more like less representative samples. So that's one thing we did. Um, but but you know, you are right that we're not able to show causation, but we were able to show um, that several different types of music engagement, so the types of um, the types of music that you're engaging with and how long you are engaged, especially if that's for several years, 
and that made like a really uh, meaningful difference. And, and I think a lot of the findings that we see, one thing that helps get us closer to causation without being causal is um, sort of consistency with what we hypothesize and, and being able to show um, different, like what, what we hypothesize to be more beneficial, that showed up. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. According to science, we are making you smarter at this very moment. Just by listening to that, your IQ has gone up by a point or two. I don't know if it works that fast. Anyway, we're talking with Scott Emerson, who's a researcher at the University of British Columbia, who was one of the guys who was behind this study that shows that those who take music lessons, students who take music lessons, generally, often, across the board, do better in school. And Scott, just before the break, a couple things you said just before the break I want to dive into here. One of them was different types of music have different effects. Is classical the one that has the biggest effect? That's always been the theory. Yeah, well, what we did was was we, we divided two broad classes. So we looked at vocal music, which is um, sort of choral choir and singing, essentially, like those types of classes. And then the other one was instrumental. So these are like stringed and uh, wind instruments, so your piano, uh, playing in a band, things like that. And uh, the classical, so those instrumental um, forms of music, those were the ones that really um, showed out that, that, that they had participating in music was good for academic uh, achievement but if you if that participation was with an instrument and, and learning an instrument then that was you got even you know more bang for your buck like more benefits any theory why yeah so what one uh, probably the strongest one is relates to these uh, cognitive abilities called executive functioning uh, executive functioning which relates to um, essentially self control and uh, Sort of regulation of your behaviors and thoughts, so things like being able to switch between tasks, um, like sort of inhibition, being able to like monitor information and your working memory. So a lot of these, um, and, and these things are like very important for education. A lot of interventions are actually targeting and, and trying to improve them, and it has been shown that they can be improved and learned. They are malleable, which is uh, which is really good to hear. And with instrumental music, we our theory and and there is some building evidence on this is that in playing an instrument involves and it invokes many of these executive functioning um, capacities. So just like there's physical fitness, we believe this is like a mental mm. fitness. So it's, it's really, um, to use a pun, it's tuning in and uh, honing these, uh, these skills that, that help then and help your academic achievement and, and sort of flow over to cognitive benefits. Well, there are certainly, and it's an interesting point, because if you're playing an instrument there, you're doing something physically, so parts of your brain that have organized the physical part of your behavior is going, but there's also, you have to think as intellectual, there's mathematics with the counting, there's emotional. I mean, you've got a lot of different parts of your brain all firing simultaneously. Yeah, no, definitely, and and even um, being able to anticipate the next uh, mm. the next note to be played, and you have to recall and then listen into what other people are playing, especially when you're in a band environment. So it's, it really is quite a very resource heavy uh, activity that people are engaging in, and it also requires a lot of with an instrument a lot of practice in like lonely time, like of practicing and, and plucking away. Uh, sort of learning from failures and, and sort of by yourself learning and learning the, how to play the notes and, and practice them. So there's a lot of discipline involved too. Were you able, I don't know if the study could be this specific, but the, the discipline side, you would think, okay, the logical leap then is if I'm disciplined enough to sit in my room and practice my violin or trumpet or whatever else, I probably am disciplined enough to study and to do my homework. Uh, were you, is that a leap or were you able to establish that people were doing this? 
Yeah, no, no it's, a, it's an excellent point. We, unfortunately, we didn't have the exact uh, information about things like discipline and, and sort of motivation for school and things, but that's that's one of the key um, sort of hypotheses that we show. And actually, other studies have shown that that, um, that sort of prolonged engagement with, with music is just, over time is associated with sort of increases in that sense of, I suppose, like self-esteem and confidence and, and the sense that I can actually affect uh, my outcomes in school, and I can, I can, if I put my mind to it, as cliche as that sounds, then I can actually, uh, you know, affect change and, and you know, improve, I'm not, improve myself. Unless you play the bassoon, and then you're just, uh, <laughs> you're left aside. You're the loser with the bassoon who got stuck with that one. I don't know. You have to do another study of bassoon and oboe players and see if they have lower self-esteem from their work. Yeah. Uh, but no, it, it really, it, the idea seems to make a lot of sense, and especially when you put the numbers behind it. But again, there are so many parts of your brain that are working mm. together. I, I've long believed, for example, that good athletes are probably good at geometry because there are so many angles involved in sports. If you're a good athlete figuring angles for shots and whatever else it just makes sense that some of the same uh general concepts in music would translate into other parts of life yeah no definitely that's i mean that's especially when i was in school i was told that like with mathematics and um with mathematics and sort of note reading that there was a connection there mm-hmm. like the, sort of because it's a graphical visual display of information like in the, like the different uh, note notation um, so, I mean, that, that's something that's definitely been held, but um, yeah, we're, we're still unpacking everything, so it's still very much a work in progress, like the overall field, but I think it's definitely making progress and, and being able to show these specific links, like with executive functioning, mm-hmm. I think that's a real, uh, that's a real bit of progress. Uh, Scott, we got to run, but uh, you're obviously a very smart guy. Did you play an instrument in school? <laughs> Uh, I did a little bit of piano, and uh, I dabbled in it, I'd say. Well, see, see, think how much more brilliant you would have been <laughs> if you had been a full-time musician in school. I mean, the, the, the opportunity that's lost, I mean, you're brilliant already, and you could have been even more so. Anyway. You know, the, the next generation. Yeah. Uh, Scott Emerson from the University of British Columbia. It's a great study. People can find the story online. Uh, they can find the research online as well. Uh, really great stuff, Scott. Thanks for the time today. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in our buddy Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. Sir, how are you today? From somewhere out east. Somewhere out east? You think it's somewhere out east? Well, we will see if you are correct. By the way, if you're calling in, Ben is answering as fast as he can, so hang with us. He'll get to you as quickly as he can. Uh, Without giving away the province, have you ever been to Heart's Desire, Herring Neck, or Dildo? I'm, I, that's still in my game plan. That's a, <laughs> my bucket list. Yes, uh, <laughs> especially the latter. Yeah. Well, I now I have many many years ago when I was a child, our family was on a trip and we stopped at the beautiful town of Intercourse, Pennsylvania. Oh. Uh huh. Sounds like fun. I was very young and um, with my family. <laughs> only so much you can do. I did bring home a pencil though that at the time seemed very, very naughty, especially since it's Am- Dutch Amish country. Oh, seems like an odd name for the Amish country to be in. Perhaps parts of the town were, rest- were, were you know, restricted. It's like, it's like the Amish Amsterdam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the red light district of Amish country. <laughs> How old are you? Sorry, sorry, you're not old enough to be in this part of the town. No, but as I say, I bring it home that pencil. It was like, tee hee hee hee, look what I got. I can't believe I can say this. Oh, haven't been there since. Had some shoe fly pie in intercourse. Well, once you've been there, there's really no reason to go back, I'm sure. <laughs> I am doing the very best I can right now to bite my lip and not make any more comments that will get us in trouble. So I will move along. 
later on the adult version of the Scott Radley Show. <laughs> we will talk more about this. But not right now. It is still only 7.10. There are still children listening. I apologize. That's no, no, not your fault. Uh, speaking of children listening, that's probably even worse to go, you know, it's better to talk about that than O.J. Simpson. But I got to ask you about this. Have you, have you checked out his Twitter account? I got to admit, I, I, I saw, I woke up, I guess, the morning that he actually said that he, before, that he, I guess he said he was going to go on Twitter before it actually all happened. And I saw a report of this, and I read it, and I was like, you've got to be kidding. And I think I had actually put out something on Twitter. I'm like, you know, like to the, you know, to the point that, OJ, please, just stay, you know, whatever you've been doing, just stay on the golf course and stay out of, like, please. No, spend your time, spend your time hunting for your wife's killer, like you said you were going to. Oh, gosh. You know, and I just, I did see something, he was talking about people who, saying negative things about him and then he offered a happy father's day to everybody <laughs> and i was like how can this happen and it just br- it brought me all back to the whole again and I, this comes from a person that i got to admit it i mean i i thought that oj hero was a hero type he was a guy that I never thought you'd see in a trash mag. He was one of the first guys in all of professional sports, perhaps the first, to cross over into the celebrity world with amazing success. And you're talking about this before the whole thing. Yes, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, had, was, a, was a, oh, you know, sure. a pretty good actor, had good roles in, in movies like, you know, The Towering Inferno. We all remember uh, Airplane, I guess it was. Naked like, Gun? Yeah, yeah, and then some serious movies as well, too, where he played some serious roles. Uh, an accomplished, I, don't, I shouldn't say accomplished, but an up, not up and coming, but a guy He that held his play, own. It was was you know could use his name to be in something more than just B movies at the time in those seventies. A big star, I believe he was dating Elizabeth Montgomery at at one time, who was just you I know, dream I, of genie. Yeah, like or wow. was it Bewitched? Bewitched, yeah, Bewitched. Yeah, like you know a, a gorgeous blonde superstar actress. Boy, that wasn't a precursor to anything. Yeah, really, good point. You know, but he had it going on. He had the Monday night gig where he was a sideline reporter. But again, going back to my original point, one of the first true crossover athletes who was a spectacular athlete on the field and then, you know, lived the L.A. lifestyle. A guy from basically that came from nowhere. So I thought, you know, what 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 an interesting guy. You know, By the way, um, and on the sideline gig for Monday Night Football, wearing the Bruno Mogley shoes and the black gloves. But besides that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, big in advertising, too. Yes, I mean, hurts. People who are, you know, maybe not old enough and those that are actually old enough like ourselves, remember what a massive star. Like, him running through airports all over the United States, leaping over luggage like, you know, they were defensive tackles. Like, that was something that made him extremely famous. And He's then, got, and yeah. Then, and then what happened? And well, then we know what happened. But here's what I here's what I don't get. That's why I want to bring this up. First of all, he's got 821,000 followers on Twitter, which is just mind-blowing who the people are who are following him. But I have to believe many of those people are doing this in a perverse way to find humor in this, although I don't know how much humor is. But do you think that he 
is doing this stuff, when he wishes people a happy Father's Day and he's commenting on the U.S. presidential election, do you think he is trying to be ironic or do you think he's dead serious, pardon the use of the phrase, you you almost can't say anything with O.J. Simpson without it being a double entendre, but do you think he's completely serious and thinking, hey, I'm out and they want to hear from the juice and I'm going to put my words in and give you my opinion on this stuff, or do you think he's doing it tongue-in-cheek? Scott, it's not tongue-in-cheek. There's no way. There's absolutely no way this is tongue-in-cheek, and it is exactly the latter to to your question. I do believe that this man is... We've seen signs of this, so it leads me to believe that he's completely delusional to what has happened to his character and, you know, what people think about him in terms of a public persona. I believe he's completely delusional, and I think that he still believes that it's 1976, you know, that he's a massive star and that, you know, what he got jobbed. And that somebody owes him something. Yeah. Well, his first tweet ever was something about how, and I got some scores to settle. It's like, yeah, that's not the way to start. Um, but here, this is what really threw me today when I, when I went online for this and, and the picture that goes with his, I mean, it's just, you're, you're right, Bubba. I, it can't be tongue in cheek. The photo, the profile picture that goes with his Twitter account is him posing, almost looking like that guy who was from the Dos Equis commercials, the most interesting man in the world. He's sitting in a suit with a loose collar on a plush couch behind a chessboard that looks like it's carved from what I mean, the whole thing is, yeah, it's, it's, you're right. Nothing ever happened. The last 25 years, forget it. It's a dream. It's like the end of Dallas. Just, um, but no, because he's been done wrong. That's that in his world, he's been done wrong, done wrong. And, uh, I, I can see not, I can see, or maybe perhaps even I'll go as far as sympathize to the reason why it has been this way is because the people that are still in his life at this point are the people that have backed him through all of this. Yes. Right? Do you, do you understand? So when there's no negativity or some type of slap of face in your face of reality of, you know what, this is what people think of you. Well, there's no way to think of that, and that's why I believe he thinks he's been jobbed, he's been robbed, that his character, it's, you know, people have assassinated his character, and that's why you're saying he's got a lot of scores to settle, and that, you know what, people have done me wrong, and it's now my time to come back now that I'm out and I'm free. And he does post a whole bunch, and other people have too, of selfies that people take with him. Like, here's what I really don't get. If I'm walking down the street... And I mean, pick out, I, I don't know who you want to pick out as the person that you would find as has done something that you believe to be truly despicable. If I'm walking down the street and I bump into, we talked about her earlier this week with a juror, with Carla Homolka. I am not crossing the street to go, Hey, Carla, can I get a selfie with you? I'm, I'm, there is scorn in my eyes as I'm glaring at her across the street. The same with almost everybody else. That, and yet people are running up to this guy. Now, I know that he was acquitted, but you've got to be straining credulity to believe that that was a just verdict. People are running up to him and posing for pictures like he's a conquering hero. I don't get it. I don't get it. you, you got to remember, Scott, that really, and, and this is where I, this comes from from me, that, because I was part of this, all right? And I, I, I'll admit to this. And maybe it was because of a sports angle, you know, and maybe because I saw him as, you know, as a young up-and-coming sort of broadcaster and whatever. I look at him as a black athlete of someone that has done well, right? Uh, And and I was part of that 
group of people that had I been living in LA, I would have had a, you know, I would have been, you know, on a highway overpass with a sign in my hand saying "Run, OJ, Run." Or, really? And I probably would have at, at that time, Scott. I'm, I'm being prior to hearing I'm, the evidence. Right? No, 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 no. When he was in the white Bronco. That's what I mean. Prior to hearing the evidence. Prior to any of his, any of this, right? Feeling that how on earth could this ever happen to O.J. Simpson, right? Like there's no possible way that this, what's being said of him, and the fact that he's almost gone to suicide, like no way. Why are they doing this to O.J.? That would have been my thought process at the time, because it just it didn't line up to me. And yes, obviously, obviously, like how on earth could O.J. Simpson be responsible for the death of his wife and you know and possibly other people? It just didn't make sense to me at the time. And as I said, when he was on the run with that white thing, and you, you think about it, I know I wasn't the only one. There were millions and hundreds of thousands of people in the city of Los Angeles that were thinking, I think, the same way that I was. That I was because look at the response you know, of people backing him and cheering oh, yeah. him at the time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and I mean, let's not forget, and I don't want to dive all into this stuff because it's not really the issue, but I mean, this is in the in the shadow of the Rodney King riots and there's racial issues going on and all this stuff. So absolutely, it was the, it was the perfect storm. But what I don't get is, Bubba, I, I understand, and you would certainly be better positioned than me. I mean, I'm a white guy. Uh, <laughs> really? No, no, but I... But at the time, again, with Rodney King and everything yeah, yeah, else, I absolutely. understand the yeah. passions that were inflamed and why he somehow, OJ would have been seen as the guy who was fighting the system and fighting the man and all the kind of stuff. But now that years have gone by and people have, a black, white, anybody has had a chance to sort of take a breath and bring it back, any intelligent person is going to say, okay, you know what? Yeah, look at the evidence. The guy, look at the evidence. And we don't have the same passions, but it, apparently even people who looked at the evidence are now, even those who might have been like you, who on first glance would have said, no way this guy could have done it. People apparently still, despite the evidence, are still saying, oh, OJ's cool. I want to be with OJ. That that amazes me. That amazes me. Anyway, and, and the other yeah, thing. It, 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 it's, it's interesting because it's a whole cultural sort of thing. Um it's you know people believe again you're right like there are people out there that think he got jobbed right and those are the oj followers but i still believe and and i could be wrong here and this is just an opinion but i of, of that close to a million people that are following on twitter i do believe a good probably more than 50 percent of his followers are there for the train wreck I, you're not, you know, yeah, are, you're probably are, not wrong. Are, 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 are there, are, are following to see, oh my God, I cannot believe he said this. I, I mean, look how delusional this poor man is. And you know what, Scott? I mean, I don't, I don't have time, I don't have Google with me beside me, but like, how old is OJ now? 71, 72? Like, come on. I, I mean, and he I may have, know. and he may have post concussion by this point. I'm not, that's yeah. not an excuse, but no, because I think he's pretty clear of mind. At least it seems to me, yeah. unless some things happen in jail that we don't know about. But he seems actually, and that's what the crazy thing is. He seems very clear of thought and mind to me. Again, but, I, that's why I wondered if there was a sense of irony here that not that he is admitting his guilt, although he did have that book and that interview that you know, if I did it, kind of thing, which was like a scream for, yeah, I did it, but I just can't say so. But again, if he's thinking, you know, if I'm just outrageous enough, 
I'll get all these people tuning into Twitter. I, I wonder about that. Or if he truly believes he's just being the juice and doing what he always did. I don't know. Oh, I, Scott, I think, I think that, you know what, that, that maybe, maybe, I don't know, I've never been there, but maybe when you get to fame at that level, right, uh, it, it, it's, it does something to you. And I think we've seen that with a lot of people in sports and obviously in, in, in Hollywood in terms of acting and actors and actresses, that sometimes mm. when you get a certain amount of fame, it, as a person that you maybe change or become something, maybe you're right. And well, he seems to be one of those people because I will continue to, to, to say that when I watch OJ and listen to him right now, I, I think there's a man not living a lie, but a guy that completely is delusional to where and what has happened to him in terms of his public persona. Here's the other thing about this. Now we're going to probably move along, but, uh, the video that he posted yesterday, it was right before the first Democratic debate. And why O.J. Simpson is preaching to us that we should be watching American politics, even to the Americans, why? I, I don't know why anyone is going to be following O.J.'s advice. He's a felon. He can't even vote. But um, he pans as the camera is showing the TV and then panning to him. It shows his house. This guy is supposed to have had a $30 million judgment from civil court against him by the Goldmans and the Browns. His house, Bubba, is better, is nicer than your house, than my house, than anyone probably listening's house. I, I, I don't even understand how the system works anymore that he can live like this. He's living in the lap of stinking luxury, and he's a guy who's supposed to have a $30 million judgment against him. But let alone the judgment, Scott, what about these unbelievably high-priced lawyers that he had backing him? That, well, but that, that was where all of his money went. That's what I don't get. Well, this is what I'm saying. Like plus plus the lawsuits and the civil lawsuits, how does this guy have a penny to his name? Like, this is amazing to me, and this is why. And I say this loosely. Maybe this is why we all should live in America. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the land of opportunity and free, or what? Because how on earth could he go through what he's gone through financially, and what it must have cost him to become a free man after serving time in jail? And that, he, as you said, he's living the lifestyle of the rich and famous again. How is that possible? Only in America. Golfing every day on a private course. How is this possible? Living, you know, you know, and not being funny, and, and seriously, not being funny right now, not being silly, not being anything with this. You know who this has to be just eating up inside is the two families, the Browns and the Goldmans, whose loved ones were lost. Imagine being the sister or the parent or whatever else and seeing this guy living like this, knowing that the judgment was against him for all those millions and they can't somehow touch it and he's living the great life again. This, this that's, that's really what this Twitter thing is driving me nuts about because it's rubbing it in the faces of people. It's rubbing it in the faces of people now. That's an excellent, excellent point, Scott. That's a very realistic angle to actually look at because you're right. How could those people not feel years later still to this day? You never lose it. I mean, we've all no. lost, you know, family members and, and you know what, life does go on, but you never forget. If I was him and I'm thankfully not and I never will be, you get away with murder even though he had to do time in jail. I mean, you go underground, you disappear, you go quietly, you live a quiet life, and you just sort of blend into the background. That's what, That's what I would think. Go, go away. Hide out. Enjoy your life. Enjoy that, you know what, yeah, people want to take selfies with you. Enjoy the golf course. Enjoy your home. 
don't be out in the public. You know, and it kills me, Scott, because here's a guy with my old favorite my favorite team, the Buffalo Bills, a guy that ran for over 2,000 yards in a 14-game regular season. That will, that, that's his yards per carry in that year. It'll never, ever be matched ever again. One of the most spectacular seasons in NFL football history. A hero on the football field, but a bum. Yeah, all in all, in it, the end, it is. Uh, I just can't wait to see who he's going to endorse for president, so I know who to vote for if I was an American. <laughs> uh, he'll, and probably, so, he'll probably run. Yeah, well, uh, he already did. <laughs> he already did run. He was in a white Bronco when he did. Oh. <laughs> There you go, see? Uh, and someone called in, by the way, and said certain U.S. states vacate or something different rulings that don't have to honor other rulings from different states. So uh, there you go. You can go to Vegas and hide out and never have to pay anyone what you owe them. Nice system. Wow. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. You can watch him tonight. He'll be on. He'll be doing sports. I don't know if he'll be talking about OJ. You know, you should maybe do that. You should become the new Hertz guy running through the airports and leaping over luggage. I would watch those commercials. I don't know if I can jump anymore. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be watching for it. Bubba, thanks for doing this as always. Oh, thanks for depressing me. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.